Welcome back to the podcast. We're recording. My guest is Matt Hone. Is that how you say your last name? Yep, that's right. Matt Hone is Senior Director of Cybersecurity at Guidewire. Let's start there. What is Guidewire and, you know, what do you guys do? Give me, paint a picture of the scale of, of the company. Yeah, so Guidewire is a, um, let's see, I guess market cap. We're a public company. It's uh, about 6 to $7 billion dollars. Uh, we make software for the property and casualty insurance industry. Um, and that software essentially powers everything from quotes to claims to analytics, um, all of the software that runs to process insurance. Is there a specific cyber insurance component to this or this is every insurance everywhere? So the idea is it's flexible for new lines or if you want to um, expand in certain areas Uh, the reality is that most insurance companies will have a focus, right? So you might know um, Geico from all the auto commercials or, or things like that. So there'll be different different carriers will have different requirements and they might actually expand lines. So what about if they want to sell you know, homeowner's insurance or bundled packages and things like that? So um, that's going to be dynamic. And so the software needs to allow for um, flexibility and customization. Um, and so part of that can be cyber insurance. Um, Now, I came on to Guidewire as part of an acquisition uh, where uh, it was a company called Science. And uh, basically, Science built a whole platform around specifically cyber insurance. So, so that's my domain area, but uh, happy to talk to all the others as well. Okay, so insurance as a, as a, as a principle, as an area, I don't understand at all. I think, I, I don't know. Can you tell me, is it complicated on purpose for us not to understand, like my basic health insurance, understand what the premium is and what the coverage is and which doctor I can see and not see and how it's calculated? Is that complicated on purpose? <laughs> I think a lot of us think that it's, uh, that's probably true. Um, I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. So there's, there's good and bad bad sides of that. So one, I think the reason why it's so complicated is we have a lot of regulation for different types of insurance. And you might know that in healthcare, you might see that in uh, auto, um, you know, there, there's only certain amount of premium, there's only a certain amount of profit that companies can take, they have to take in certain, um, you know, factors, risk factors, and they can only look at certain risk factors. So like, um, you know, age and experience in driving, for example, um, that's all part of the reason why it's um, it's so complicated. And then as far as exceptions go, um, you know, every insurance policy is a contract. And so when, when you think about how many variables there are for all the lines of coverage, um, just like any sort of contract that you read uh, or write between vendors, uh, there's always going to be these weird nuances and exceptions. So I think that's ultimately why it's so complex, but it really doesn't need to be. And actually, I think cyber insurance is probably one of the easiest lines to understand. Is it really? Yeah, it's, um, you know, if you think about a small business that wants to go out and get a cyber insurance policy, you can uh, you can go online. It's probably three or four clicks. And um, yeah, you can get a policy in, in maybe 10 minutes. Right. But I mean, like, the, the let's let's back up a second and go at a macro level. We're, you're... The company that you that got acquired, remind me the name again. Uh, it's pronounced Science. Science with like a C Y E N C E or something like that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 your the domain expertise there was the cyber risk modeling. And if we can equate that to real life, it's the equivalent of modeling risk for say a hurricane 
and what the potential damage is if a hurricane passes through X parts of Florida and you're you're doing this modeling around risk online, right? This uh, cyber risk. But but it seems like we don't even understand. I, I mean, CISOs and folks are struggling to even like define and understand risk and you're modeling it at the level there. Are we, is that science um, established or is that something we are still kind of tinkering with? <laughs> yeah, pun intended. Um, <laughs> I think uh, we are, we're in an interesting field and I agree with you. It's security is so complex at just the company level. So why are we even thinking about it at an industry level or even a country level, right? How are we supposed to quantify risk at, at those levels? And honestly, the reason why I really uh, enjoy the space that I'm in is because these problems are so complex and so challenging and it's never a dull moment. And you get to really explore these edge cases um, of, of what could happen. So Yes, we're looking at, uh, so So there's two parts. One is looking at individual risk. I think everybody's very familiar with that. Um, but we take that a step further and we look at aggregate risk. And the reason why that's important is because if you think about how insurance is structured, if you or I go to the hospital or if you or I are in an accident or something like that, um, the insurance carrier, you know, they're going to take care of you. They'll, they'll cover your losses, et cetera. Um, one particular event is not going to make or break any individual insurance carrier. But if you have a massive hailstorm in um, you know a certain area and it damages you know hundreds of thousands of autos and you're a small insurance carrier, that's really the the issue that people are worried about from the insurance side is what are the losses that could essentially bankrupt my business? And so translate that into cyber, an individual cyber breach. Yeah, it could be bad. You could have a target. You could have you know something like that, but um, what if you had a hundred targets, for example, is that, is that going to affect your book? And so that's what we're trying to really solve is, is help people understand what are the, what are the potential scenarios and what are the losses associated with that? And, um, you know, I can give a couple examples. So, uh, you know, massive data breaches, right? If, if some, like, if there's a vulnerability that was exploited in mass that happened, and actually, obviously now we have examples, but we were thinking about this and there's a paper out there that was published before, you know, WannaCry and Petia happened. Uh, we're looking at outages. So, you know, everybody's moving to the cloud. Well, cloud outages can happen. I mean, we've seen a lot of counterfactuals of, of not long outages, but shorter outages where the entire cloud goes down. And so, those types of events, when you're thinking about cyber insurance, and these are all covered by cyber insurance, that's why we're in the space is because we really want to quantify that impact. And just more, more closer to home, ransomware, right? That's an example of one of those risks that people understand, that people understand the pain and that uh, cyber insurance has kind of emerged onto the, the, the headlines around what's happening with ransomware, this kind of perfect storm. Um, is that why, let me rephrase the question, are CISOs and businesses uh, investing and purchasing cyber insurance and doing it in a you know, more, very, very mature way in response to things like regulation and just kind of one of those checks boxes I have to have? Or are they responding to it out of, you know, I really need to hedge against real pain? Yeah, that's a good question. The the market itself is fairly soft. And what I mean by that is um, people who want to get cyber insurance can go ahead and find someone who will write cyber insurance. Um, 
I think the response um, could be in in response to ransomware. It could be just general risk perception. Um, you know, as a CISO or any leader of an organization, you want to mitigate your risk. And if you know you don't have a, a mature security stack and you are, let's say you're a smaller company with limited tech knowledge or limited security personnel, um, one way to mitigate that risk is to buy cyber insurance to, just to help cover that gap. Because ultimately, what the goal of any company is um, to make money and to stay in business. And uh, the worst case scenario is for a company to go out of business because they had a cyber event. And so that's, I think, where the cyber insurance market is targeting. Um, now, I do have a lot to say about, I think, uh, you mentioned maturity. Um, I think cyber insurance, when you look at it from, you know, if you step back and look at it, um, there's not a lot of new insurance lines that happen uh, very, very frequently. So, you know, auto is, is a long known insurance established, line, right? established exactly. Uh, property insurance, very established. Um, cyber insurance has only been around, I sort of debate it, but we'll just say 10 years or so. And there's no real regulations on for, for companies to follow uh, yet. And I think we're moving in that there's direction. There's a lot of guidance though, right? Guidance, yeah. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, experts out there who believe cyber insurance is a way to mitigate your risk. Um, it's generally perceived as, um, you know, one option for uh, a lot of CISOs who want to, um, or, or even not CISOs, companies who don't have security personnel at, on their staff. Um, cyber insurance enables them to talk to uh, security experts, breach coaches, um, and give them resources where um, they may not know who to turn to. Is that where the sweet spot is? This small business, small, medium-sized business without a CISO, without a security director, without specialized staff, that's the sweet spot for cyber insurance? I think that's a big market. Um, now, whether or not it's the, the sweet spot is up for debate. Um, I know. It's I, a, uh, it, it, it sounds ominous to me that we're outsourcing, like we're saying that small businesses are outsourcing security to insurance. Like that sounds very ominous to me. <laughs> I wish it was more of an outsourcing uh, because I think everyone could use help um, in this um, field. But the fact of the matter is it's basically a channel for, I, I, or at least I believe it can be more of a channel for education um, resources, yeah. and resources. And that's ultimately, you know, I, I talk to a lot of my friends who work at, um, you know, a lot of the big IR firms out there and um, they're complaining like, man, you know, this, this ransomware, it's just, Every single day I'm dealing with a ransomware event. It's like it's the same thing every day. The IT guy didn't know what was going on. They had to shut down systems. It spread and now we're cleaning it up. And, you know, I, I relate to them. I, I say, yeah, you know, it's huge. I think if, if we could just get a little bit more education and get resources in there, we might be able to stop, let's just say 10% and hopefully, um, you know, have an impact on the economy. Can we linger on ransomware for a bit? Can do you mind take, uh, having some hot takes on this whole ransomware space? Because I think it's fascinating as it relates to insurance. And you mentioned uh, companies going out of business because of security. Yeah, it, you know they weren't many before ransomware. This ransomware epidemic came along. There were a handful. Did you know Tar? I believe someone was actually maintaining a list, and there was a handful. And then uh, ransomware came along, and all these doctors' offices and small businesses started just dropping out of business. So I want to. Uh, ask you directly a couple of questions. Sure. How much ransom you think is actually being paid to bad guys? 
just for <laughs> companies to stay in business? Do you think what percentage of all ransom requests are being paid? If you could, if you if you had to guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't have to guess. I can go off of published data, and, and no one has the the goal. Well, no one has real data because no one is reporting it for real, right? Exactly. Yeah, and that's you know that's another problem I think with this industry in general is that's uh, why I wanted to ask about the modeling. The modeling seems wacky if no one is reporting and the data is all skewed, right? Yeah, it's not that we don't have data. It's just there's no standardized data. So when you think about ins- uh, earthquake or earthquake insurance or earthquake modeling. You have in the U.S. at least you have the USGS. You go there and they've got the database. It's like non-disputed. That is the factual database of of where all the earthquake data lies. That doesn't exist in our world. Exactly. And so it's not that we don't have data. It's the data is very spread out, and I think that's allowing for companies, at least like science and us, to innovate in the field to to really start capturing data that we believe makes sense. And data is. Certain data is worth more, or I guess in, in modeling we call it, you know, it has more signal than others or lift. Um, and so we do a lot of te- guess and testing. We look at databases that um, that have facts. So think about this. If you wanted to go to and find out a list of every company that has been breached ever, where do you go? Th- there's, there's nowhere. Yeah, I mean, there is just, no, just, there is no specific. Uh, breach database. There's a, there's 25 different places I can go. Exactly. Yeah. You can, you can Google search it. You can find articles. You can look at, you know, there's some health, um, there's some reporting in certain healthcare sectors that where you have to report a breach. Um, but I mean, honestly, this, there's a lot of things that are underreported. And the funny thing about that, and I actually wrote about this is that insurance companies, now that they're getting a foothold in the space, they're one of the few places that that have truthful data because a lot of companies even though they're having breaches they don't have to report it publicly but insurance companies have that data and so i think eventually um, you know if we can build a consortium or something like that amongst all of the insurance companies that are writing cyber and we have a good coverage across the globe we actually might get close to to that data repo that i was talking about earlier Interesting. Uh, you, you're not going to get around to the initial question, though. It's like, what percentage of all ransom requests do you think are being paid? And based on this, the answer to this question, how much of this do <laughs> you think is being driven by the insurance company saying, hey, just go pay? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so I'll say I personally think, based on the data I've seen, it's less than 10%. Now, some people say one or less, less than a percent. Sure, I guess we could probably argue the nuances, but... Um, I'm going to say most people don't pay. Um, now for the ones that do pay. They're paying um, a lot though, right? Some prices are really, really high. Just anecdotally hearing in background stories, the companies that do pay are paying big, big, heavy prices. It's true. I mean, I think it varies. There are smaller companies who will pay smaller amounts and larger companies that will pay larger amounts. And I think it's proportional to, yeah, essentially how much business they have, how valuable their data is. Also, attackers are getting smarter. They know that um, they can demand more. They know that some companies have insurance. And the funny thing is, uh, I mean, they're starting to find out that uh, cyber insurance actually covers the ransom in in a lot of cases, not every case and depending on jurisdiction, but in a lot of cases it does. And so because of that, ransomware is, I I think, not just because of cyber insurance, I think in general, you know, it is feeding the cycle. And, I, you know, that's one thing that 
I think around regulation and standardization, a lot of people are against that. I'm actually a, a proponent of it because I feel like we a need proponent to, of of getting some regulation in cyber or some standardization around what what should be covered, what should not be covered, um, and and a framework on that. Yeah, I don't want to get into the politics of the whole ransomware and paying and the role of the insurance companies in in because it's it's public. I mean, it's been it's been reported that the insurance companies are. Uh, encouraging clients to pay certain ransoms. But, you know, you and I both know because you come from, and I want to get into that a little bit, your background, a world where there are nation states who are, you know, playing this ransomware game as part of uh, uh, generating revenue. And then, you you know, it gets into that really, really murky world of paying a ransom to a nation state that might be sanctioned. And it's just a very, very tricky, tricky world. <laughs> um, that's rather fascinating. Yeah, Ryan, I want to ask you a question. Let's say you're a small business. This is business. my podcast. Oh, man. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Let's say you're a business, a small business, and you get hit by ransomware, and you do have cyber insurance. What's your take? Do you think you should pay or should you not pay? Well, why am I buying cyber insurance instead of buying backups, like proper backups? Like that's, that's, that, that came back to my earlier point about outsourcing security to insurance companies. It's like I've, <laughs> I've bought insurance as this little bit of a safety net instead of investing in backup. Like is, that, is there a cost benefit to that? And that's where the modeling comes in, right? And the pricing and, and, and measuring of risk. And if I'm a small business and I don't have a CISO or a security program to do risk measurement and so on, then maybe I not even I don't even know about backups. So the question is, it's it's too complicated a question to answer. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, but like I said before, I think ninety percent of people are going to fall into that category, right? We're talking about less than ten percent of people that pay, and it may be because your backups fail. Well, what maybe- size is my business that you just asked me about? Am I a doctor with uh, you know four machines around the place, or am I a, a company with a hundred employees and you know stuff around? Uh, let's say, you right, know, 100, 100 employees. 100 employees? It's a great question. You, I might I might hedge on ransomware, uh, sorry, on insurance as a safety net. I get it. I get, I get the business and I get the business model. I'm just worried as an industry or as an ecosystem that there are so many folks outsourcing that comfort to insurance instead of having backups in place and the problems that they cause for the rest of us. But that's not a conversation. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, it's a hard problem, and it's yeah. I, I worry I think that I, the insurance companies aren't helping, though. That's what I worry about. Is are, do you share that at all, or do you 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 think we are heading in the right direction? You know, um, I think like any industry, we can do better. Uh, it's not perfect. I will say, based on my experience, what I've seen, I, I've seen cyber insurance help out a lot of companies um, mm-hmm. of course. That, that really just didn't have their, their act together um, and they knew it. And so it, it's it's like you said, there, there's a, an industry, there's a market for it. And I think it does help the majority of people. But yeah, th- there's going to be exceptions. Do you find that CISOs understand cyber insurance in the whole world? It's funny, most people I talk to, um, and you know, my background coming from security, sort of the pure security world and moving into the cyber risk world uh, was a very eye-opening transition because um, outside of the security space, I, I don't, I honestly, I believe there's not um, a lot of knowledge around cyber insurance um, or at least what it does, what it covers. I think people understand insurance. And when you put cyber in front of it, you can kind of guess what it is. 
But if you ever ask, oh, what does it cover? What are the limits? How much am I um, exposed to? Um, those types of questions are, are generally uh, way beyond anyone's normal comprehension. I got to tell you, I find insurance, like I mentioned earlier, it's very complicated. I also find it incredibly boring. Um, but I was at the CISO forum last year and there were two ladies, one from Cisco and I believe one was from Allianz uh, uh, talking cyber insurance. And I mean, tell you, it was the most fascinating subject that I had, that I had sat and watched at the CISO forum. And just the, it was really interesting to me. The CISOs were just deep in thought about how to answer a questionnaire properly. Um, because this, uh, with cyber insurance and regular insurance, just the differences and the complications there are so interesting that I sat there just, usually my eyes bleed when people start talking about insurance, but I sat there mesmerized. And that's why I asked the question, if you feel like CISOs are getting a grip on this or they're just kind of, okay, it's one of those checkboxes that I need to do. <laughs> yeah, I think we're getting started. Actually, a good indicator of that was um, last year, 2019, um, Black Hat introduced its first micro summits geared around cyber insurance. And actually, mm -hmm. if you know Jeremiah Grossman, he he was the uh, chair of that um, panel slash discussion. So I think it's starting to get traction in the mainstream. Um, but we're, yeah, I think Jeremiah was the, Jeremiah got into this as a proponent of companies should, uh, should back up their promises with some sort of insurance, right? Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was the Sentinel one product where, um, basically they provided a warranty of, um, for ransomware. And so that was sort of their, it was actually, um, yeah, one of a very innovative solution, one of the first in the space uh, to back up the software with a promise or guarantee of uh, recovery. So um, I, I think it makes sense. I think that's very, one portion of cyber insurance. But when you think of um, where it is today, um, I mean, we've got policies that, um, I mean, they're, they're so customizable now. I mean, one, one of the things, for example, going back to aggregate losses that... Um, uh, that I've done research on, uh, we look, looked at things like uh, underwater cable cuts um, affecting an entire continent of uh, from internet connectivity. Uh, you know, solar flares. Have you thought of uh, you know there was a massive solar flare about 150 years ago that would have totally just disrupted the planet. Um, those types of events could have huge, huge aggregate losses. So, um, anyways, just uh, just a tangent there, but. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of maturity I think we can go through. Why are two security guys talking about insurance? You come from a fascinating background. And one of the things I've, I've always been you know, curious about are folks who worked in government and then made the transition to Silicon Valley and into tech. I just had Brooke Pearson on the podcast who came out of the Department of State as a bureaucrat and a, a, a diplomat there. You also come out of the Department of State. How did you get in? Like, what was your what was your entry into security? When did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, my story really isn't that interesting. Um, you Everybody's know, I, story is interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, out of school, I thought I was going to build solar panels. Uh, I was an electrical engineer. I studied solar, um, and I just so happened to you know have a strong networking background. But um, that was initially my goal, and then I took a research job at the Navy. And um, I started working in, um, yeah, sort of like electronic warfare space, just just really interesting research around um, 
you know, just, just apply. No wonder you're talking about solar flares. <laughs> yeah, you got to think big, right? Um, <laughs> and, um, and that was, uh, it was, it was great. It was really eye opening. And then after that, I just, um, you know, managed I feel to like land. you're skipping over some fun stuff there though. <laughs> On probably, purpose? probably a little bit. Yeah. Not, okay. you know, you know how it is with government work, but, um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, after I transitioned into department of state, um, I joined as a security engineer and it was, um, that's where I really got the traditional um, sort of security experience, hands-on. I actually started with physical security before moving that into That was computer. a defensive role? A uh, defensive role, yep. So defensive in uh, protecting uh, U.S. interests overseas. And um, it was... Wait, wait, wait. You, you mentioned physical security there. This is like physically going to embassies and, and, and measuring and managing risks there uh, internationally, like U.S. locations internationally and measuring security risk from a physical perspective? Yeah, initially. So um, everything around, um, you know, high security locks, uh, alarms, bollards, protective layers, cameras, etc. That that's initially where I started, and um, you know that it's a tall task. I mean, I think uh, you know the U.S. footprint that's overseas. That's a fascinating gig, though. <laughs> Did it was Snowden do some of this. Snowden. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't Snowden know exactly. travel internationally doing some sort of physical security thing. If I, I, I may have, I don't really pay attention to his story, but <laughs> yeah, I'm not, honestly, I'm not, a, uh, I haven't paid attention to, to what he worked <laughs> on, but um, I think, uh, yeah, it, it was a great entry point, at least into understanding security just holistically. And then um, I, like I said before, I had a, a stronger networking background and then I moved more into uh, computer security and um, why? I like hard problems. Um, I know uh, I knew at the time that uh, computer security was one of the areas that was going to continue to grow and expand and increase in um, in complexity. Um, and I, I wanted another challenge. So I thought, um, you know, I, I had a little bit of hardware background and, uh, and networking. And so um, it actually translated really well. Um, I, I led a team of uh, reverse engineers. And that hardware background actually let me, uh, it, it was an easier transition just because it was, uh, you know, reverse engineering at a, a lower light level. So, What made that enticing? Was there a team there? Were there people there that could influence you to, you know, be intrigued by that role? Yeah. I, so, imagine, I imagine government work to be just like insurance, incredibly boring and incredibly like buttoned up. Maybe I'm completely wrong. I've never been in it. But <laughs> what was fascinating about it? Yeah, no, I think it's the opposite. It's it's been extremely exciting. Uh, looking back on my career, um, just the opportunities I was given to to grow and learn, uh, the leadership there. Uh, you know, I think I think the government gets a bad rep. I think people think um, uh, you know it's, it's so bureaucratic all the time, and you know, no one's no one knows what they're doing. But actually, I think we had really really strong leadership, um, clear direction, and uh, ultimately a, a very very um, you're t easy to understand mission, but uh, complex to execute. Uh, and so given all those factors, um, I, you know, I, I think it was a great experience and I would recommend it actually to anyone who, uh, who asked me. What was the best part of working for the government and what was the worst part? <laughs> um, the best part, uh, was interacting on a global scale. So I think I used, um, that opportunity to really understand um, not only just, just broaden my perspective, but understand 
in the U.S., we have our own challenges. In other countries, they have their own challenges. And so seeing that and hearing about it is very different. And so I'm very, I think that was, that was one of my, um, my best experiences. I would say the worst experience um, would be, um, you know, things don't move very quickly. Um, I think you have to be very um, diligent. You have to be comprehensive and you have to be patient to get anything done. If you talk to people in the startup world or in the tech industry that really like to move fast, it can be um, that alignment doesn't exist. So I would say for me, I'm generally, um, I like to move a little bit quicker. So I think that was always a pain point for me. When we think of information sharing in cybersecurity between private sector and government, it's always from the private sector side of things, which is where I come from. Um, The government becomes painted with this black hole picture. Information goes in and never comes out. Is that fair? And uh, uh, do you think the government could, what could the government do more if that's not fair to kind of smooth over that perception? Yeah, no, that's, um, I agree with that perception. Um, I think there's a lot of things that uh, the government could do. Uh, You know, DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, was, they have departments just dedicated for public outreach and to help the public. And actually, I think they're underutilized uh, in a lot of cases. Um, I think it's hard, the government's in a hard position. Um, When you think about it, you know, not everyone trusts that that feed is the the all-inclusive feed. Uh, I think really you need a combination of, of trust in both private and, and public sectors to uh, have at least data that you are very confident in. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly how to answer it's it. It's a think- hard, hard problem to solve because it is a black hole and, and there are legitimate reasons for it being a black hole. I don't know. I just get the sense that things are changing and there's a lot more active actionable, useful information coming from governments to the rest of us. And I I refer to like the ASD documentation, the Australian Signals Directorate documentation on like really how to secure your network properly. I would go there for all the guidance I need. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I I feel like there's efforts on the way to try to manage this information sharing better. Of course, it'll never be perfect. Yeah, I'm with you. I think we can do some, uh, you know, as cybersecurity experts in the field, uh, we can do a better job working with the various governments to to build that collection and, and share information. I think you're right. Um, and then, you know, the other side of that is the people that ingest it, um, you know, I would ask what people do with it. I think really only the, the top tier industry are able to really um, utilize a lot of the threat intel out there. So uh, maybe it's weighted towards... Um, you know. Matt, we can barely patch our Windows machines. You're going to worry about threat <laughs> intelligence. We have people outsourcing outsourcing security to insurance companies to hedge against ransomware. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the level of the haves and the have-nots and the security tax in this world is so stark to me. There's the haves who have all the resources and and money to hire the best talent and buy all the best expensive tools, and then there are the have-nots. Uh, who are completely taxed out of adequate security. And that's a reality of our industry that I don't think we're even paying attention to the fact that small and medium-sized businesses have been taxed out completely. 
Oh, that's another conversation for another time. I have so many of these tangents that I go off on. <laughs> no, I like those. I think that keeps everything interesting, especially when you're talking about insurance. <laughs> I'll pick out insurance all I want. <laughs> Listen, what is the best part of Silicon Valley and what's the worst part of Silicon Valley? Coming out of that, I need to have a lot of patience and I need to keep my eye on the macro big picture world of government to Silicon Valley and into tech where it's move fast, break things, just nudge elbows out of the way. How how was that transition for you? Ooh, yeah, that's, uh, Ryan, you like asking tough questions. It's, um, just, why you, it's like one of my um, go-to questions because I'm fascinated by people that, that, that bridge these two crazy different worlds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, it wasn't that easy for me. Um, I, uh, you know, when you're used to something for a long time, uh, it's, it's hard to transition out of that. Um, ultimately what got me going was the industry I was in and the problems that I was solving. And I find extreme joy and excitement in solving problems that help other people in, in some form or fashion. And you can actually see those results and knowing that this industry is, um, is, was really ripe for transformation and, I joined at a time where cyber insurance was, you know, it was, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think gross written premium was like two, 300 million um, globally. And that number is, you know, three, 4 billion globally. So it's just, it's grown so much. And I think um, cyber insurance is really enabling folks um, to get better help, better resources. And while it's not perfect, um, seeing that transformation is, it's very rewarding for me. So that, that there was a there was a there was a certain enticement there. You mentioned uh, global there. I don't think we discussed it. Is cyber insurance the industry more mature in certain geos in Europe, for instance, versus here in parts of maybe Asia? And part, is it even an industry there? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, from what I see, cyber insurance is mostly um, U.S. in terms of gross written premium. Uh, Asia, Europe. Um, South America, they all have their cyber insurance. Um, it's not as widely adopted as in the U.S. And the reason I think for that is um, when you look at costs associated with a cyber breach or cyber outage, um, the people who need it most are the ones in the U.S. just because um, regulations... Infrastructure by, providers too. Yeah, sure. Infrastructure providers. There's, there's going to be a handful as well. Um, but the the costs associated with cyber breaches are just, you know, much much higher in the U.S. What is next for you, Matt? You are you on a CISO track? I mean, you've you've done the government thing, you've done the startup thing. You're really solving problems uh, in in the cyber insurance space. That is uh, again another complex thing. Uh, how does someone in your uh, on your career trajectory view the future? Well, Ryan, I think I'll follow you. Um, <laughs> That's not a good idea. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think um, it's funny though. I, I really like strategy. I like um, big picture. Um, CISO is is not out of the cards. You know, I think CISOs um, have a, a great deal of responsibility and. Um, for, for just society in general. And um, depending on your industry, there's really important infrastructure that we're all reliant on to keep safe. So um, I like that. I like 
I like thinking strategy. I like research. Um, we'll see where the wind takes me. Um, I, yeah, I've always been a, a fan of, of do what you like, and hopefully you'll find something that works out. How are you coping with COVID work from home? And has that changed the way you manage your security program with your employees scattered around the globe at home? Luckily, we had a, uh, well, we, we have continued to have a pretty robust program of work from home. I think being a technology company more than an insurance company allowed us to uh, implement a lot of that before we were forced to do that. Um, so actually, our employees were very enabled and uh, tr- our transition went uh, very smoothly. I can't say the same for everyone, but um, you know, I think um, we've been lucky in that sense. Did- so if in your case, this was not like a forced digital transformation where you were scrambling to get things in order. Your house was already in order. Yeah, luckily. Um, like I said, you know, I think with any company, we had to scale up a little bit of our edge, um, you know, VPNs and and just allow for additional traffic um, and maybe upgrade a couple of licenses for remote working. But uh, all in all, I think I think we did a pretty good job. Are you viewing this, everyone working from home, as an uh, increasing your risk? Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of articles written on this, and um, I'm not convinced that it's going to increase the risk across the board. Um, I think when you look at how attackers get in, it's not, we're not changing. I mean, you know, 90% are through phishing emails they're still going to be through phishing emails. And just because you work from home doesn't mean you're not going to click on a link. So um, I, I don't know. I, I, from my viewpoint, I don't think it's going to increase that much, maybe slightly, just, just given the um, potentially more, um, you know, passwords involved, certificates involved, points of breach. But um, we haven't really seen that big of an uptick yet. And um We'll see if that holds true. Do you feel the need or the urge to scan and monitor your employees' home routers? That's an interesting question. Uh, One of the things that I dabbled in, um, and we actually have a a product for this um, at Science Guidewire, is around personal cyber risk. And I think that the reason why we have that is because, sure, the, the commercial insurance for cyber is growing, we also think there might be a growing need for personal cyber insurance. So your home network, your home router, all of your iPads, Android devices, Wi-Fi devices, Chromecast, et cetera, they're all on your home network. You've got a lot of potential hardware that can be exposed or... Why are you exposed. calling that my home network? I'm working from home now, right? Isn't that your network as well? <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess depending on how it's configured, um, I would hope that you have an end-to-end VPN tunnel from your work laptop um, that hopefully it's um, shields you from some of that. But you're right. Yeah, some have split tunnels and, and there is considered one network now. Um, so I do think that this should be on the radar for companies uh, to evaluate a home router or firewall to understand what is that configuration? Is it default? Is it exposed on the internet? The problem has is it been you, patched? Yeah, has it been patched? <laughs> well, last was it patched? I think we're drawing, we're we're walking on a fine line with um, personal devices and and work devices, and we we came across this before with uh, mobile phones, and we solved that with um, containerization on mobile phones. But mm-hmm. when you talk about 
routers and home network devices, it's not as easy to think about separating the two. And so while I do think it's a good idea, I think it's very hard to implement practically today. And and that'll change. And I think the product, you know, that we released, part of that is actually to to look at your external IP to see what's available and, and provide some recommendations. So um, maybe we'll move Let's- in that direction. Let's close on this. You mentioned that we may be heading to a place where we may need personal cyber insurance. Give me the maybe five, six, seven checklist items that uh, the average home user should make sure is buttoned up. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll start with the low-hanging fruit, Um, patched browser, patched operating system. Um, I think I can't stress that enough. Of the number of actually, we should have that. They they're already patching themselves, right? So in many respects, it's just rebooting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, think my browser patches itself. I don't remember the last time I went to my browser to say, "Hey, can you check for update and patch this?" My browser patches itself every now and then. I see an icon that tells me to refresh and restart the browser. The operating <laughs> system in the Windows world does more or less the same thing. You get a you get a notification that you need to restart, right? So I think. Um, Maybe you and me, Ryan, maybe we think that this is uh, something that's that's easy to do. I would say if you talk to someone who's not in the space, this is something that's always put off. No one likes to patch their stuff. They're always ignoring updates until it's forced upon them. And I think Chrome did a good job of forcing it, but not everyone uses Chrome. There's still the IE users out there. There's still Firefox. And um, I, I think regardless, I still think it should be the number one priority. For, for it should personally. be. And, and what I think people should do, though, is like when you're evaluating a product to use, I mean, if, if security is a thing that's important to you, you should analyze whether it has a self-updating mechanism. You should analyze whether it is capable of patching itself. Like I will not use a browser if it's not patching itself, right? That Like that's a basic benchmark. Yeah, no, that's a good consideration. Um, I would throw back another caveat, though. If you're looking at personal cyber, what about devices non-browser de- or non-PC type devices. So, um, Same thing. Same thing. If I'm buying a, a, a camera to stare at my pet, right? I mean, it, it, it gets into the cost of it and whether it's disposable or whether I should patch it. And it, it gets into a whole different economic <laughs> uh, risk measurement thing. But in theory, uh, if you're a home user, you want to make sure that things, I mean, as an industry, we should be heading there. If it's, if it's at all possible, you should be building your product to take care of itself. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So, so we'll, we'll agree to disagree a little bit on that. But Okay, um, so patching. Patch your stuff. What else? I think um, evaluating plugins is really important. Um, and actually, there was a huge article that got released uh, around some of the malicious apps within Google. Um, Plugins are out there. Do you have plugins in your browser? I do. I'm I very do too. sparing. I'm very sparing with them, and I, I I deactivate most of them until I'm ready to use them. Which is a, re- a weird kind of. I'm a weird guy, though. <laughs> yeah, I would say most people don't deactivate them. I'm with you, though. I actually deactivate as well, and I, I try to keep it as low as possible. Um, But um, if you look at someone who's not super security oriented, you'll see that uh, generally their browsers have a lot of plugins and uh, they probably don't even know what all of them do. And, um, you know, those plugins, well, some of them might be good. Some are probably bad and uh, and leaking data or siphoning data off. And so I think that's an easy check that we can do for um, 
for home users is at least either an evaluation or um, account or um, just understanding the footprint of your browser extensions. Agree. Um, I so just I, we got to get people to stop using the same password too. Like that, I feel like I feel like if you if we could somehow get home users and and uh, just to figure out a password manager figure out using a password manager and just get around, get into better password hygiene. Uh, like a lot of, a lot of real world attacks would just go away. Yeah, no, you're stealing my next point and I'm not making this up. It's actually in the product that we have, <laughs> but uh, you're exactly right. I think password reuse is huge. Um, and there's a lot of ways to check. Let me you ask you a to- question, Matt. Have you ever reused a password in the last month? Uh, you mean I have. I have, and it was very jarring to me that as someone who is on top of it, who uses a password manager, in my haste to speed up the registration of something that I deemed rather unimportant, I was like reusing an old password that probably is in in the Have I Been Pwned database somewhere. <laughs> so it's such a it's such an interesting thing because I I imagine can you imagine how much password reuses out there? Yeah, and honestly, I think the the bigger problem is not the reuse itself, it's the lack of education of why it's bad to reuse it. And I think, you know, if if it's a password that can be reset quickly um, and, you know, it's for a website that um, it doesn't matter and you use a a weak password, then that's one thing. But people are reusing their their work passwords, they're reusing their bank passwords, their email passwords out there. And that's the password. Exactly. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, I will put a bow on it right there, Matt. We're up against the 50 minute mark. Any closing thoughts? And the other thing is come back on the podcast. I really need to educate myself on cyber insurance a little better so that I can question you a little better. Um, I feel like we, we kind of skimmed on the top of that. We skimmed on that topic and, and, and that's my fault. I apologize for that, but <laughs> it's such a hard, it's such a hard industry to understand that. And, and, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's boring, Ryan. You're right. I mean, I think uh, you know, cyber insurance, um, just like any other insurance product, you don't you like driving a car. You don't like insuring your car, but it's there for that that very rare case. And you know, ultimately, that's that's what cyber insurance is for. It's it's trying to protect against that rare case that doesn't happen. You're not really supposed to think about it that much, but I'll tell you, when things go south, you're really really happy um, that it's there as a backstop. So. Yeah, you know, thanks for having me and uh, yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you, Matt.